0: The scripture reading as we prepare our hearts for the sermon is from Jeremiah 33 and John 8. Hear God's word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and is in Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Then Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray together. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light.
1: grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to find your way to our sermon text this evening, it will be in Genesis chapter 38. I will be reading selected portions of Genesis 38, which are printed in your worship order. This is a rather delicate passage. And considering that we are in mixed company, I want to be as discreet as possible, yet as faithful to the text as possible as well, as we make our way through this story. We are beginning a series today for Advent on the mothers of Jesus. And when we talk about the mothers of Jesus, we are referring to the women who are mentioned in the genealogy found in Matthew 1. There are five women mentioned there, and each of those women have a story to tell, It's remarkable that their names are mentioned in the genealogy at all, but you find as you read their stories that they have something in common, and it's more than their sex. It's even more than the strange things that happen to them in their story. You find that they are key links in the seed line or in the family tree of Jesus Without these women, without their stories, without their experiences, none of us would be here today. And so we want to take a time as we enter into this Advent season and look forward to the coming of Christ. We want to take a moment just to stop down and pause and look at these remarkable women as they are mentioned to us in in the story of the scriptures. One Christian counselor puts it like this. As he refers to the story of the genealogies in Matthew, he says, Matthew makes it a point to include Tamar, Rahab and Ruth, embarrassing limbs on the family tree that others might want to prune. One became pregnant by her father-in-law. One was an outsider and prostitute. The other was an outsider who was reduced to nothing. Plus, they were all women who didn't have much worth to begin with in those days. And yet we see that because of the mystery of God's providence and mercy... These women are mentioned by name. These women are mentioned by name and they're given a place of honor among the forefathers of Jesus Christ. And as we will see in this brief series, these women are the foremothers of Jesus, which is why we refer to this series as the mothers of Jesus. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Genesis 38. And the word of God says, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For Judah feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter in law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. About three months later, Judah was told Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, may be seated. Well, you see in your worship order that the title... For this sermon is hashtag me Too, shame and the gospel of grace. And I want us to find a way to connect the things that we see in scripture with the things we experience in our culture. And this is a text that will allow us to do that. This is a story that is very important for us to listen to and not only listen to what we see in Genesis, but see ways that we may connect it to the experience of of members of our congregation, and the experience of people in our community and in our culture. We find in the story that there is a woman named Tamar. Her Her name means palm tree. Perhaps palm tree was fitting, even though she was given the name as a baby. Perhaps she grew up to be a tall and slender woman of some beauty and grace. But her name was palm tree, In the story, we see that she has experienced a range of difficult things. She was given to one of Judah's sons, and he was such a wicked man. We don't know what he did, but he was so wicked in the eyes of the Lord that the Lord killed him. And according to their custom, she is then handed off to the next brother who is supposed to help her conceive a child and then no longer know her in that way. And yet, this brother is so wicked that he just used her as a toy. For his own pleasures. And because that was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord was gracious and spared Tamar any more shame and any more scorn by putting that brother to death. From Judah's perspective, Tamar was simply a black widow, a woman who was cursed, a woman who was responsible in some way for the death of two of his sons. And there was no way he was going to give the third son to Tamar. And so Judah does something that is rather despicable. In order to shame and scorn her even further, he sends her back to her father's house. Indicating that he's no longer responsible for her in every way. Also indicating to the community around that this woman is not worth marrying. This woman no longer should be allowed to take a husband. In other words, he does this in order to shame her. I was thinking about this story this week and and it occurred to me as I stopped to think about it, that throughout the course of my ministry, especially, I have come to know many Tamars, more than I had even realized. I've come to know many Tamars in the course of my life, inside and outside the church, Women who have been mistreated and used and abused. Women who have been tossed around and thrown aside by stupid and foolish men. It's no wonder we see the kind of crises in our culture that we see. It's no, long, it's no wonder that we hear women crying out for justice over ways they have been treated by men. One of the stories that stands out to me from my experience happened in my very first ministry many years ago. I was sitting in my office one day and a woman came and knocked on the door and I let her into the church. And as she stepped out of the sunlight into sort of the dark hallway of the church and we adjusted our vision, I realized this woman had been beaten by someone. Her eyes were swollen. Her lip was fat and cracked and bleeding. She had scratches and bruises on her. And all she asked was for a place to sit quietly and rest. And she sat in the sanctuary of the church. And I went back to my office to wonder what to do. Made a few phone calls. And then finally, a woman came to the church. And the three of us sat and visited with her. And I said, what do you want us to do for you? And she said, I just want you to pray that God will grant me some relief from my husband. And that's what we prayed. The next day, I was sitting in a coffee shop with a bunch of men from town, and someone came in and said, hey, there's a strange woman outside looking for you. And I went outside, and there she stood with a large man that I thought might be her husband. And she was crying and trembling, and I walked up and asked if everything was okay. And she said, no, you killed my husband. And I was mystified. I didn't know what she meant. And then I realized that she began to break down the story that the very story we had been talking about in the coffee shop involved her husband. For the night before, a man was involved in an accident on a remote road just outside of town. And his truck crashed and he was killed, but his two friends survived. That man was her husband. It was the closest I came to experiencing the kind of thing that's happening in Genesis 38. That sometimes God acts on behalf of people in very severe but merciful ways. And you see that happening in Tamar's experience. And it certainly happened in the experience of that woman I knew all those years ago. God is a God of justice and he always does what is right and good. We don't always see that as we should, but it does happen. What was happening in the case of the woman I told you about and then more importantly to the story here is that there was a kind of shaming and scorning that was going on. Judah sent Tamar back to her father's house to mark her as an unfit wife, to shame her as an unworthy woman. You know as well as I do that shame is an epidemic in our world, and it doesn't just strike or affect women. It also strikes strikes men and children even. One PCA pastor, Scott Sauls, says in a recent blog post, shame is an emotional undercurrent, a low-grade anxiety that nags and needles at the soul. It is a fever without a temperature, a low-grade and ever-present condition that tells us we are less, smaller, and other than what we ought to be. And you know, he's not wrong about that. And you could even go much farther. Some of you know full well what it's like to live with shame. And you know that shame is more than an emotional undercurrent. You know that shame is the poisonous lie that gets pumped into every fiber of your being with every heartbeat. It's the secret voice in your head that whispers, you're such a mistake. You don't matter at all. You deserve much worse than you've gotten. And sometimes it's the voice in your head that screams at you that you are a total waste of space, you worthless piece of. And it's not not at all hard to imagine that Tamar was living with that kind of shame. But what do we mean when we say shame? What is shame? Shame, according to Ed Welch, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, something associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. You can read more about this in Welch's book, Shame Interrupted, which I would recommend to you, especially if you or someone you know wrestles with shame. Trying to connect the Scriptures with our culture. I want you to hear what some Christian women say in articles about the Me Too movement and we'll relate that to the mothers of Jesus. An article in an article found in Christian Century, one Christian woman writes, the Me Too movement took off because it harnessed the power of personal story. Individual stories can point to a societal problem that goes far beyond any individual. The witness of the silence breakers who collectively were named person of the year by Time magazine and the brave statements of people like Rachel Denhollander, who testified against gymnastics doctor Larry Nassar, are examples of how the telling of stories can reshape culture. Another woman writes in World Economic Forum one of the things that the Me Too movement exposed is the diversity of this experience. Sexual harassers do not discriminate, women and men are vulnerable. And in a New York Times opinion piece, another Christian woman writes, abuse takes place when one person fails to see the humanity of another taking what he wants in order to experience control, disorder, intimacy or power. It is the symptom of an illness that is fundamentally spiritual, a kind of narcissism that allows him to focus only on sating his need, blind to the pain of the victim. Seeing women as the rightful owners of their own bodies depends first on encountering women as fellow humans. Now, like you, I know that there are many abuses with movements like the Me Too movement, and I'm not dealing with that right now. I simply want you to know that if there are enough women in our culture who are crying out for justice and crying out in pain over things that have happened to them, if the New York Times and Time Magazine can give some ear to that, perhaps we as the church of Jesus Christ should open our eyes and ears as well. You see, it's not happening out there only. These things also happen inside the Lord's church. And we see in the scriptures even that these are stories that were happening as far back as Genesis. Now, I don't know if Tamar would have joined the Me Too movement. I don't know if she would have had a Twitter account and hashtag those things. But I do know in reading her story sensitively and cautiously that she qualified as the kind of woman who could have legitimately said Me Too, Me Too. Me too, because of my first husband. Me too, because of my second husband. Me too, because of my father-in-law. She is quite a witness, isn't she? Of two things. The sorrows of shame and also the glories of grace. And we get this in her story. If you dive back into the story with me in Genesis 38, you know that... Here we find uh, Judah going out after the death of his wife and the time of grieving has passed. He decides he's going out for the sheer shearing of the sheep time, which apparently was a festive time. It was also known as a boys will be boys time. sow your wild oats kind of time, because it's a bunch of men and young men and all the women are somewhere else. So it was not uncommon for men to party hard and celebrate with feasts and drinking and even with prostitutes. When you read that story again in Genesis 38 in your own time, you might pause for a moment and say, how did Tamar know where to be, how to dress and what Judah would respond to? You get every indication that Tamar knew her father-in-law very well. There is a reason why she went to the road, to the gates of that city, and dressed the way she did at that time. There's a reason why she dressed in the colors she did and wrapped herself the way she did. It's because she knew her man, she knew her father in law, she knew her target. She knew that this was not going to be a one off, out of the ordinary experience for Judah. He had a reputation. And she knew about his reputation. Scholars in attempting to compliment Tamar will say things like this, if you read the commentaries, that she was resourceful and that she was enterprising. I think they mean those to be compliments at least. But what it comes down to is Tamar took matters into her own hands. She had been cheated by her father-in-law. She realized he was never going to give her his third son. And that if Judah had anything to do with it, she was never, ever going to have any children. And this poses a problem, by the way. If you're reading the book of Genesis from Genesis 1 forward and you get to this point and you see the way Judah is acting, you might get a little bit nervous. And here's why. Because in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise that he would send a savior to crush the serpent's head. And he would do that by the seed of the woman. And up to this point, God has faithfully preserved that seed line. But now we see Judah trying to do some things. Not aware of what God's providence is up to. But we see Judah, because of his anger and his fear, trying to push Tamar away. And yet God is about to reveal something incredible to all involved. I want to say a couple of things about the way Tamar is described here. In English, we use some very strong words, prostitute and, and worse. One Old Testament scholar, Von Rod, uh, explains this. I want to share this with you. It might help you understand what's going on. He points to the details of her clothing and her veil to indicate that Tamar did not play the role of a stereotypical streetwalker. There's something else happening here that she played the part of a cult mistress, a well-to-do married woman who is permitted by the laws of the land to sell herself to other men for religious purposes. In other words, this was a fundraising event for many people in that culture. This is how they funded the temples of their gods, In the ancient Near East. And what that tells us about Judah is that Judah is not a discerning man. He's not a devout man at this point. We see in Judah a man who just wants what he wants when he wants it, the way he wants it. And he doesn't care if he has to cross over and fund the temple of false gods, if his little contribution is going to go to a God that is not the God of his fathers, Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. But is Tamar resourceful and enterprising? Probably, if you want to put it that way. I don't use language like that. I do think she was very shrewd, though. She negotiates the terms of this arrangement. And in order for you to understand what she means by if you give me a pledge, what is she actually asking for? In our day, it would be equivalent to this. She was saying, okay, we can do this thing, but you're going to leave me your driver's license, your social security card, and a credit card. And when you bring me the young goat that you promised, I'll give you these things back. And you see how foolish Judah was in this moment. You see how foolish he was to say, sounds like a deal. Here it is. And he shows no regard for it. But I want you to see that Tamar does something here that is also shameful. It is shameful what she has to endure. That hope against hope for the joy set before her. She endures this awful experience. Despising the shame of this experience. Because she has hope for something greater. This is a woman who is desperate. Not conniving, but desperate. We can look through this and ask, well, what are the troubling parts of this story? There are many troubling things about this story. Uh, Some more liberal scholars refer to this story as one of the texts of terror because it is such a troubling story. Not only do you have the mixed marriage between a covenant member and a non-covenant member in Judah with his Canaanite wife, but then you go on beyond that and you have these wicked sons of Judah who are so wicked that God puts them to death. And then you see Tamar, this innocent victim in the story, suffering all kinds of sexual abuse and social shaming. These are the troubling aspects of the story, and perhaps there are others as well, but there is a comforting part of the story that you should see. And it's easy to lose in the midst of all that's happening here, but you see that God intervenes in Tamar's life. He intervenes and acts in her favor, not on just one occasion, but on many occasions. You see God working quietly and silently behind the scenes, rescuing her from abusive men and rewarding her in the end with two sons. It's only in retrospect that we see that what God was doing was for his glory and for the good of Tamar. It's only in retrospect that we see what everyone else saw, and that is what Judah intended for evil, God intended for good. In the beginning, God promised to send a savior into the world to destroy the devil and his works. And God intends to keep that promise. And that's why at the end of this story, Tamar gives birth to twin boys. And it was one of those boys that preserved the seed line of the Christ. If you go back to Matthew 1, you would read that her son Perez fathered Hezron and Hezron fathered Ram and Ram fathered Aminadab and Aminadab fathered Nashon and Nashon fathered Salmon by Rahab, whom you will meet soon. Salmon fathered Boaz and Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, whom you will also meet soon. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David and David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife Bathsheba, whom you will also meet in this series. The thing I want you to see is that God worked by means of Tamar's quiet faithfulness to preserve the seed line of the promised savior. We say often around this place that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, and that is true, and we believe it. But we could also add to that that God grows fruitful trees with withered branches, as he did in the case of this story. We see that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. As Tamar learned by experience, by grace, God can take the worst things about us and turn them into wonderful things for His glory and for our good. And how does He do that? He does it by grace. He does it by grace. Now, grace is not that thing that God gives you to allow you to sin and do anything you want no, grace is a thing that God gives you in Christ to change you. Grace takes the blame. Grace covers the shame. Grace removes the stain. What once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Now, I know some of you, especially some of you women, and perhaps far more of you than we feel comfortable talking about. I know that some of you struggle and suffer with shame every day. And I do not say that to shame you in the least. I say that because I want you to know that we share in your burdens. And we want to assure you that your sorrow and your shame do not go unnoticed. I also want you to know that there is hope for you in the Savior who came through the sorrow and shame of the woman Tamar, a mother of Christ. You have heard that it was said, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. But I say to you, heaven hath no favor. Like a woman saved. And Tamar was saved. Not by her own righteousness. But by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As we heard in our scripture reading before the sermon. The Lord is our righteousness. Like Judah there are people who would love to burn you at the stake. They would love nothing more than to see you burnt to a crisp. And cast to the ground. But then Jesus comes along and says. Let him who was without sin strike the first match. Tamar was not condemned by the Lord. You read Genesis 38 and there's not a word of criticism from God about her. There is praise coming to her from people in the community. Judah said, she is more righteous than I. And what she did was certainly more righteous than the things that he had done. But her righteousness was not based in that. Her righteousness is based on what God had done for her in Christ or what God intended to do for her through Christ. So Tamar was not condemned by the Lord. And I want you to know that there is no need for any of you to be condemned by the Lord either. Whether you're a victim of circumstance like Tamar, whether you're a vindictive man like Judah, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like Tamar and even like Judah, you can be restored. You can be delivered, restored and saved by the power of the truth of the gospel. When we speak of people being saved, we don't simply mean that their soul is saved and will be saved sometime in the distant future. No, we mean that the grace of God is breaking into your life now, breaking into your experience now. And God's grace is Restoring and renewing people even now. Salvation isn't just about getting your soul saved. It's about your life. It's holistic. And Tamar experienced that and you may experience it as well. Now I want to say a word to some of you. If you've ever experienced sexual abuse, sexual harassment, Sexual assault from anywhere. I want you to know that we did not pick these stories about the mothers of Jesus in order to reopen your old wounds. We picked these stories about the mothers of Jesus to show you that you are not alone in these things. And that you do not need to bear your wounds alone. And you don't need to hide your scars Any longer, and you don't need to wallow in fear all by yourself. We will listen to you and we will pray with you. We will help you find counseling if you need it or want it. We will rush the throne of grace with you, hand in hand, to help you find healing. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to say that the same goes for the rest of us. For all of you who have sinned. Whether it's a sexual sin or some other kind of sin. For all of you who are carrying some kind of soul-crushing weight of shame. By God's grace, let this be the night that you cast your burdens on the Lord and give your fears to Him. Let this be the night that you find liberty in the gospel of grace where your shame can be broken away from your heart. It's our hope and prayer that God might use these stories beginning with tomorrow and moving forward, but use these stories to remind you of Jesus Christ and all that he has done to heal you of your wounds. For by his wounds, we are healed. As Scott Sauls expresses so beautifully, when Jesus let himself be stripped naked, spit upon, taunted, rejected, and made nothing on the cross, when Jesus, the perfect one who had done nothing to be ashamed of, surrendered to the ruthless, relentless shaming and bullying that led to our redemption and healing, he neutered our shame and stripped shame of its power. He's simply echoing the gospel of grace, which says that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For no one who believes in him will be put to shame. So what does Tamar have to do with me too and shame and the gospel of grace in you? Well, hopefully by now you see that it has everything to do with you. And where do you find healing? Where do you find hope? You find it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let us go to Him together. Let us find healing in Christ together. Let us pray. Lighten our darkness, we ask You, O Lord. By your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Grant us the grace to turn back to you again and again, as often as we turn away. Wipe away our tears, mend our broken hearts, bind up our wounds, for the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. O God, I pray for the women of our congregation especially, and especially for those who have confided in some of us the sorrows and shame that they have experienced, the scorn that they have received in their life on the earth. We give you the praise and glory for the salvation that they are now receiving and experiencing from the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his healing mercies, his tender care of our sisters. We thank you for the power of the gospel to change lives and to rewrite stories. We thank you for the hope that you have extended to us in the person of Christ. Oh, Father, it is my prayer that the Spirit of Christ will descend afresh and anew. On these, our sisters, who still feel the burden and weight of shame and guilt, not always for things they have done, but for things that were done to them by others. And I pray that you will grant them relief from those burdens tonight. I pray, O God, in your tender mercies, that you will take away this unnecessary and unmerited shame, and grief from them, that they may rest in the promises of the Lord Jesus. We know that the world is full of women like Tamar, and sadly, there are women like Tamar in our churches as well. I pray that you will bless each and every one of them for their quiet faithfulness and devotion to you, and that just as you showed mercy and grace to that godly woman, I pray you will do the same for our sisters and our mothers and our wives and our daughters and our friends in a culture that has gone crazy. Oh God, we pray you hear us as we cry out, The Lord is our righteousness. And I pray that he will be the righteousness of all for whom we have prayed this evening. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.